Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Film by Numbers from Outward Film Network. We are the film podcast in which the topic of discussion is dictated by the number of the episode. Thank you to those who have listened to all our episodes thus far. We're on all the main podcast providers and do check out our back catalogue, which contains everything from film twists to James Bond to religion in cinema. My name is Phil Slatter and I'm joined by the one and only Mr. David Woods. Hi Phil, pleasure to be here as always. As ever. Now you can search Outward on Facebook, Instagram and our YouTube channel and our website is outwardfilmnetwork.com. We're up to episode 11 and as there are 11 players on an association football team, this episode we will be discussing football in cinema. It's 11 aside. We'll be looking at how it works from an aesthetic point of view, how it works narratively and socially, and taking a look at documentaries, as well as mentioning some films that you may not think of as football films. Now, Dave, you're the filmmaker, so I'll start with the the first question. Traditionally, people say football doesn't translate to the big screen. I've got my own views on this, but what's your opinion on why it doesn't, or do you agree that it doesn't? I think in a lot of instances it doesn't. Football's immediacy and frenetic pace are hard to capture in some fingers, relatively slow paced of filmmaking. It's when you're constructing a movie, it's a very slow process. And yes, you can cut footage to speed it up, but this seems to lose a sense of narrative, um, which the sport of football beautifully plays out in a natural way. Uh, I can think of a very good example of a film that does overcome this, The Damned United, um, by focusing on specific stories within a game itself and this is because it drives through brian clough's personality and his conflict over managing a leeds team he didn't fundamentally respect and there are those subplots in the game the violence the leeds players inflict on opponents you think of stephen graham's billy bremner in that respect um but there of course are many examples where there's just a lack of drama and tension um that's so hard to replicate when you're considering such a live fast-paced sport as football yeah, football's a fairly quick and fluid game. And I think to recreate its movements realistically is quite difficult. Mm. And when you watch a football match on the television, although there's a lot of cameras these days, there's a lot of technology. Fundamentally, what happens is there's one camera, usually on the halfway line, as high up as it can be. And the action does cut a little bit from that. But you get that one master shot. Whereas when you put that in cinema, it's very difficult to create a football match in that environment because you've got actors that have got to do the skills of a footballer so what happens is i think it becomes over edited uh, and it can also become too slow um some films have been more successful than others i think mean machine is one in which the football scenes are a bit more realistic and the goal films their kind of main selling point was that the football is a the football shown on screen was realistic and you could buy it but there are a couple of points these are films we're going to discuss a bit more in detail later but the final goal in bend it like beckham is a case in point where the goalkeeper dives past the ball as it swerves the final shot the final football action of escape to victory is a penalty and it's done in slow motion and the ball seems to be dipping as the goalkeeper catches it in reality it was a much quicker game than that and it's hard to i guess it's just from just filmmaking point of view you've got to get actors to sort of do something that they perhaps can't do you know can you take a free kick like David Beckham and bend it into the top corner from 30 yards well no so you have to edit around it and that makes things difficult other sports in particular American sports they can be a bit more stop start and they have to have a championship match the Super Bowl the World Series and any baseball match it always ends with a winning run or an out there's always a climactic moment no matter what so other sports lend themselves a bit more to cinema than in a way that cinema that football i think doesn't um because by its nature it's quite low scoring and also because you have draws and you don't have you can't have one team snatching victory from the jaws of defeat with one moment with one goal unless you get into the convoluted area of away goals and aggregate scores and things like that you mentioned also the damned united earlier and it just got me thinking of that scene with brian clough where the his leads team are playing his derby team are playing Leeds and the whole match plays out while he is in the changing room you just see the crowd reaction in the background so you never see any action you just see him responding to it and it's all about the emotion of it so there's I think the more successful football films will kind of tap into that and perhaps the more successful sports films as well Uh, I mean a lot of sports films tend to have the issue of predictability we're told who to root for we want them to win And in order for that feel-good ending, they need to emerge victorious. There are, of course, 
exceptions to that, Rocky and the, the Creed films, for example. But in boxing, it's perfectly possible to lose a fight and gain huge respect and opportunities you know, because it's such a brutal sport and people can lose a fight over 12 rounds, but people have enormous respect for what these uh, men go through in what is a very brutal and dangerous uh, arena. And the MMA film Warrior splits the narrative. So we follow the two finalists equally and we have no idea who's going to win the fight. Football, however, it actually is fairly predictable. There are shocks, but that makes the shocks results even, but when they do happen, they're even more th thrilling because more often than not, the bigger, the better teams win. Whereas in film, we kind of expect the unexpected, don't we? So we kind of know that the underdog is going to win if that's the way the the story is following the uh, narrative arc. Yes, this is difficult to replicate within film formula as as, as is prescribed. Football films where the manager is the narrative focus work better. So again, the Damned United and even Mike Bassett, England manager, which is it's not an outstanding film by any means, but it's it's amusing. And I think filtering it through Bassett as the central character and playing it from his perspective works really well. Um, the football fan perspective in the it's a very little known film, Purely Belter from 2000. Uh, it's a bit of a character piece, really, front and centre. Um, that also finds a way around, shall we say, the the slight inertia that can play out in in, in a filmed football match by using the characters to, as you as you alluded to, create that emotion um, and the connection to football. In terms of presenting the drama in a compelling way, I would like to see filmmakers think outside of the mechanics of the game, perhaps, and look at the details that are not just in the technique um, and the style of football, but things like how the football moves, the individual personalities on the pitch, and even things like the texture of the grass or uh, the way the dugouts look. <laughs> um, create that narrative using the game itself. What's the driving force behind the encounter and what are the individual battles taking place? How does that add up to a coherent story within a story? Could the game even be a story itself using little dialogue and playing out through the details? And I haven't seen it, but maybe... Uh, Zidane, a portrait of footballer in the 21st century. 20, yeah, Zidane, 21st century portrait. Yeah, I don't yeah. know if that kind of plays with that idea quite well. It's I've not actually seen it myself. It's quite an interesting piece. The problem with it now is that we have so many cameras following every football match. And back then it was quite a new approach. So it's worth seeing. Um, elements of it may be a little bit dull. Um, perhaps a bit of its time, but maybe a bit ahead of the curve in that regard. Maybe, maybe something to help filmmakers progress to, to build on, to progress mm -hmm. towards telling a story through a game. Yeah, certainly an interesting take because it's Zidane, how he's, he's not really interacting with his teammates. He's sort of on his own. And then he gets involved in the scuffle when he gets sent off. It's, it is a documentary and the narrative, the story within the documentary is, is quite interesting because it's not him going to score the winner it actually has a bit of a downbeat ending and it taps well into his his personality as a player in that regard I mean, we often hear the old joke you couldn't make it up which is often a load of nonsense because filmmakers can make up anything and there's the old joke about if you can make up a film where computers take over the world in the future you can make up a story in which a team score and the 90th minute equalizer away at stoke but the whole point of drama is that it isn't scripted and we genuinely don't know what's going to happen. And I think that is therefore very difficult to create in an artificial environment like the cinema. You think of a real life example, I'm a Manchester United fan and the 1999 Champions League final. Uh, it, it's it, it plays like a Hollywood script. It's, of course, a very famous moment when Manchester United won the treble in 1999. It, it's the most enthralling, dramatic moment Certainly in watching sport in my life, it's certainly among my most enthralling moments ever. It, it, you, you, you could imagine it being a Hollywood script, but it's almost too unbelievable. You, you, you know, there's no time left and suddenly Manchester United score twice out of nowhere. They, hadn't, they didn't play very well in that final. The team, although it was a brilliant side, a lot of people don't mention this, we actually were shipping a lot of goals that season and there were frailties at the back and our goalkeeper, Peter Schmeichel, he was outstanding, one of the best goalkeepers I've ever seen, but he had a back injury and he was um, in his final season for United. That was hampering him a bit. And there are all these actual things going against us. We're against a very good Bayern Munich side. 
uh, who seemed to be just getting their grip on the trophy. And they they pretty much won it as a very famous uh, account of the ribbons being tied on the on the uh, European trophy from um, the, in the colours of Bayern. And they had to be removed when Manchester United equalised and got the subsequent winner a, a minute later or so. But it was it, it's just unbelievable drama. Unbelievable. And it's that immediacy that's so hard to replicate in in a filmed environment. I remember watching that game as as somewhat of a neutral and the first equaliser went in. We're like, oh, wow, they've scored an equaliser. Right, there's extra time. And then when the second goal went in, our jaws just hit the floor. I was like, what's just happened? In two minutes, this rush of emotion that's gone, they've gone from the pit of defeat and despair to winning the Champions League inside two minutes. If it were in a film and I was watching that, they'd have scored the first goal and then... When the second goal, when the second corner came up and right at the end, you'd kind of think, oh, I can see what's going to happen here. And I think you'd almost be expecting it. And when it does happen in real life, you're like, wow, this is amazing. But when you see it in a film, you're kind of waiting for it a little bit. What's going to happen? And it it doesn't necessarily have that moment of it might not happen. Football is live. Sport is live. And it's a drama that is being written as we're watching it. Uh, and I think that is a genuine problem. I mean, one film that I felt flips the idea of predictability quite well was uh, 66, which is a fairly little known working title two production. Uh, tells the tale of a young Jewish boy called Bernie, played by Greg Sulkin in London. He's desperate for people to come to his bar mitzvah, but it's due to be on the same day as the 66 World Cup final. And everyone's reluctant to commit to coming to the bar mitzvah just in case England make the final. And what happens is we obviously know that England do make the final and they win the World Cup but we're following it from Bernie's perspective. And so bizarrely, we're actually saddened from his point of view when they do get through the quarterfinal and get through the semifinal because we we want him to enjoy his big day. We want to, him to enjoy his bar mitzvah, but we know that them getting there is going to have a negative effect on him. So it was quite an interesting take on the predictability of the drama. You know what's going to happen, but in this case, it actually kind of gets you wishing it doesn't happen just in for this the purposes of this story. So there aren't too many examples, but that was just one that I could think of. Yeah, um, I'll have to check that out. It's um it's it's quite entertaining. I mean Eddie Marzan, Eddie Marzan and um Helena Bonham Carter, so not a bad cast. Perhaps a little predictable at the end. Um but it's a it's a enjoyable film. Um quite lighthearted as well. Um we're going to sort of talk a bit about football as a social commentary, but we we can't really talk about on a podcast about football and film without going through starting with John Houston's 1981 escape to victory I mean I can't take you can't take credit for this description but when I was researching and writing this podcast I, I came across this it says Michael Caine leads a cast including Bobby Moore Pele Ozzy Ardiles half of the 1978 Ipswich FA, FA Cup winning team and Sylvester Stallone in an exhibition match against the Nazis in an attempt to escape a prisoner of war camp I mean, as pitches go, it doesn't get more bizarre than that. What's not to like? I think you're right. It's become a cult classic. Um, I mean, what what are your feelings on it? Do you think it's a good film or is it just a film that you enjoy, even though it maybe is a bit ropey? Great fun. I think that answers it all, doesn't it? Um, it's, It's ropey. It's very, very silly, but... and. Um, you know, just go back to Sylvester Sloan saving at the end. He, he probably did need the help of the editing team to to actually pull off a save as his goalkeeping up to that. Kind of reminded me of the guy who was always picked last in the football team and shoved in goal. Um, sorry, Sly, but well, the story not, not, not goes, the best, not the best uh, guy between the sticks I've ever seen. Um, the story is that he wanted to score the winning goal, but someone had to explain to him that in football that's highly unlikely to happen with a goalkeeper. It does happen. Goalkeepers do score, but course, it wouldn't yeah. happen in that situation when you're drawing four all in the last minute. Um, so they had to come up with an alternative ending so he could have the big climax. I mean, it's a bizarre mixture of football and war drama, isn't it? Um, some of the football I think is quite good because apparently yeah. Pelé designed some of the, some of the kicks and some of the, the setups. I think up to a point, it's quite an interesting war drama. There's quite a good story about escaping from this prisoner of war camp. And then the moment it sort of switches is when they go to escape at half time through the, through the tunnel. And then they say, actually, no, let's not escape from this horrible prisoner of war camp and escape back to our homeland. Let's go out and play the second half. And I just thought at that moment, 
it lost some of its credibility as a realistic drama. Um, I also sort of felt really sorry for the French resistance who had spent their time digging this big uh, hole and getting through to the change room so they could escape. And they said, oh, yeah, thanks for doing all that, but we, now we're not going to bother escaping. We're just going to go out and play kick the second around half. Stage, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but then equally, that's where it becomes an iconic football film is in the second, in the final act, when we see the second half of that football match and you, you do have the cliches to a point. I did think, why don't they just wait till the end of the match and then escape? They give themselves a 15-minute window at half-time why couldn't they just wait till the end when they truly have a longer window to get out and when all the crowd is going to be milling around outside the stadium and then they can just get, get away that. They'd have, that would have made more sense. Um, As you say, you it's a little that, ropey. Yeah. But then you also have the slightly ropey way that they do. Actually, we, We're going a bit spoiler heavy here, so apologies if you haven't seen it. When the crowd charge the field at the end, again, that feels a bit false because you've got these Nazi stormtroopers around the edge holding guns and the crowd, for no real reason, after the game finishes in a draw, run onto the pitch and you just think that wasn't coordinated. It's a bit forced. And again, the film loses all sense of realism. But mm. it is a strange mix. Uh, I do like the scene when Sylvester Sloan actually initially escapes the prisoner of war camp and then gets in touch with the resistance. Um, it's got a lot going for it. Um, like we say, it is ropey, but something of a cult classic. That's not bad, Hatch. What's not bad? Using your hands. Ah, uh, you've got feet, I've got hands. Yeah. Give me that. Get in there. Sure thing, General. Lewis. Lewis? Fire a few at him. I uh, gotta do better than that. Come on, you guys, just fire a minute of that. Here we go, here we go, here we go. Oh, yeah, here we go, come on, put it Give me some balls, Charlie. Oh, you're gonna get serious now, huh? Okay, then. Moving on, we had a, got a fictional adaptation of Nick Hornby's book Fever Pitch, which was a, a cult classic book that focuses on Arsenal's 1989 title win and the season that changed football in the UK forever. It was the season of the Hillsborough disaster. And from that, we had all-seater stadiums, Sky Sports, uh, and the influx of money in the game and the uh, introduction of the Premier League. In many ways, it's a coming-of-age drama, um, as Colin Firth's Paul, who is kind of a avatar for Nick Hornby, if you like. He has to grow up from a boyhood football fan to one that needs to hold down a meaningful relationship with fellow teacher Sarah, played by Ruth Gemmell. I mean, with Firth in the lead role, it, it does try to tap into the romantic comedy boom of the time whilst using football as a backdrop. So again, it's that sort of fusion of two genres in the same way, I suppose, Escape to Victory is a fusion of a war drama and football. You've got a fusion of a romantic comedy and football as well, haven't you? Yeah, um, I think it's quite lightweight. Um, yeah, the book is a lot more detailed, and yes, whereas the film focuses on the one season, the book follows his whole life as a football fan. So that's definitely superior. Yeah, I don't like comparing books to films because they're different mediums, but it, it, mm -hmm. I, I agree, the film is lightweight. Yeah, yeah, then uh, it's, it's a narrative from a fan's point of view uh, or viewpoint about growing up through football and how football can be a marker for significant development points in life. Um, and like I said, although Fever Pitch is lightweight, I think it does capture some of this idea um, and quite well too. Um, I think we can all relate to those highs and lows supporting our team. And um, it's interesting how the film uses, and obviously Hornby's novel as well, uses football to chart a romantic relationship on the side as well of course picking a football club can be a lifelong commitment and um well it, sh it certainly should be <laughs> and um 
how that makes you look at romantic relationships can be a very positive thing as well. I think there's quite a nice uh, message in there somewhere, if a little idealistic, yeah. a little simplistic. Because but... it sort of ends with him getting what he wants when he was 18 and then going off with Sarah at the end. So it's like, I can move on with my life now that I've seen Arsenal win the league. Spoiler <laughs> warning again, but mm. it, it had a great tagline. Life gets pretty complicated when you love one woman and worship 11 men, which I just thought was fantastic. <laughs> yeah. um, shortly after that, we had quite a well-known football film, I think, in many respects, When Saturday Comes. Now, this is an interesting discussion to be had here because it tells the tale of Jimmy Muir, played by Sean Bean, He's a factory worker in Sheffield with a somewhat dead-end existence. He works all week, drinks on the weekend and plays football Sunday mornings. He's got a bit of a fractured home life. Um, but when football coach Pete Postlethwaite spots him playing in one of those Sunday league matches, he recruits him for Hallam FC and it sets him on a chain of events that sees him play for his beloved Sheffield United. It's the team that Bean is a huge fan of himself. What I find interesting here is that this sits as part of a subgenre of British films from the mid to late 90s, set in post-Thatcher Britain when times are tough and individuals have to find an escape. There are some dark elements to when Saturday comes. There's the death of one key character. There's a suicide attempt. There's an unplanned pregnancy. I mentioned the fractured home life, the slightly abusive father of Jimmy Muir. Other films of this nature include The Four Monty, uh, Billy Elliot and Brassed Off. And in Brassed Off, we have Postlethwaite taking on a very similar role to the football coach in someone who's the head of the brass band. Now, those three films are classics. There's been uh, stage adaptations of them. Brassed Off, you can still go and see with a live band. Four Monty's got a TV series coming out on Disney+. Plus. Billy Elliot plays in the West End. But when Saturday comes, just doesn't just didn't hit those heights. Why do you think that might be? Is it just that it's a bad film? It is. Uh, it's the ultimate problem of formulaic filmmaking. We know what's going to happen, not just in the football game, but in pretty much every beat of the film. And there just isn't any jeopardy throughout. The presentation of the matches in a foot uh, when it coming to the football sense and where that's a problem, the presentation of the matches is rather arbitrary and it becomes very confused uh, and they don't excite because the camera isn't within the game or watching it play out naturally i.e a more detached position i mean when we're watching football live that's how we watch it but that admittedly is close to impossible in film because the quality and stakes aren't there but there, there are ways to do it which i'll talk about later but we know jimmy muir is going to win the game for sheffield united and it's particularly annoying that he does it against Manchester United, which made me dislike <laughs> is that why the you don't film. Like it? Uh, uh, slightly, yeah, maybe. Um, <laughs> it, I think it is a bit of a Sean Bean vanity project. Um, he loves Sheffield United. Definitely, He's very yeah. on the record about this, and it does feel like that. And it's very, very cliched. You mentioned there are a lot of interesting themes there, certainly. And you're, you're right; it was made around all the all the films you mentioned. Brastoffit, for example, is a very good film that captures that post-Thatcher era very well. This just simply tries to do it by the numbers, and I don't think it puts any heart into it, really. It was a film, I, I was going through a period at the time where I was just wanted to watch anything with football in it, <laughs> and it was yeah. really, really disappointing. I think also with the full Monty, Billy Elliot and Brastoff, they, they have a narrative that's about something slightly alien to the world, uh, mm. in stripping ballet and brass music. Whereas mm, when Saturday comes is about something that we all know about. It's about football. Um, and Brastoff, it does have its climax, but then it's kind of a bit of a slightly downbeat one. Billy Elliot, he does follow that arc. Uh, the full Monty ends with the, the famous stripping scene, of course. But when it's football, it, it kind of felt a bit Roy of the Rovers and it felt a bit, like you say, cliched. And maybe those other films, which do have the same arc, they, because they're about something that we're, new to uh, a lot of us are new to that's maybe why they tapped into something that we could perhaps were more interested in uh, and it didn't we didn't feel like they followed the cliches which maybe they do to a degree when saturday comes actually it does finish very like the 1999 champions league final <laughs> you know yeah. uh, jimmy mill skills what twice in the last couple of minutes uh, it's very similar and yet you don't buy it but when it happens in real life it's unbelievable i think there's also there's also a problem with the age of jimmy muir i mean he's he's well into his 20s and then suddenly he sort mm -hmm. of gets fast tracked to play for a 
I say Division One, as it was then, now a Championship club, and that felt unrealistic. I mean, if mm, mm. if he was slightly younger, and a film that, that was trying to trade in on a certain realism as well was a problem. Yeah, yeah. Um, if he was slightly younger, I think it might have worked on that level. But then the idea of him being in a sort of dead end job looking for a relationship that maybe that element wouldn't have worked. So it's interesting that, you know, how you can have these films that follow these same arcs and some of them work and some of them don't and what makes them work and what doesn't. Um, that brings us on to a purely Belcher film you mentioned briefly. As a film I saw in the cinema, just me and my friend, and I was reviewing it, so we had free tickets as um, we were the only two in there. It comes from Mark Herman, the director of Little Voice, Brass Tough, which we just mentioned, and The Boy in the Striped Pajamas, uh, and follows two Newcastle fans who scrimp and save to try and buy season tickets. Now, I didn't realise anyone had seen this film other than me and my mate, but then, again, writing this pod, and you said you'd seen it. It was released in uh, 2000. It's quite a funny uh, and sweet film, but Adrian J. Walsh, Adrian J. Walsh and uh, Richard, i trying to pronounce his name, Giulianotti. Giulianotti, maybe? Giulianotti, yeah. Apologies if you're listening, Richard. Uh, <laughs> talk about how football was moving away from the working classes and becoming unaffordable. And the whole narrative of that film is those two just trying to get, literally beg, borrow and steal to get money to buy Newcastle season tickets. So a slight film, but an interesting little character piece. And again, a film that doesn't feature too much football, which has got it in the backdrop. Yeah, and it, it captures the experience of being a fan really well with good humour and feeling. Um, it's... It's a really pleasant, small, independent film, um, I believe. As I say, I think I think it really does capture not just the fan experience, but also when you're starting to fall in love with football as a kid and you've had maybe got your first game under the belt or you've seen your first experience, the team that you're going to support forever. <laughs> um, yeah. I think it, it's that romanticism that, you're still passionate about football as you get older, but there really is something special about it when you're younger. It's just so romantic, thrilling. Anything can happen. Uh, your heroes are doing amazing things with this football that you dream of doing in in, in the school playground. And I, I think there's a really good exploration of people who don't have a lot of money who struggle to get the money for the tickets. And I never felt it was a very arch or patronising look at that. It was very much about people who would be in that situation and very well told. Yeah, and they just that's literally their only goal is to get the money to go and watch Newcastle play, isn't it? So, Yeah. Yeah, a somewhat forgotten film, but not a bad one if you do come across it. Um, Bend It Like Beckham. Now, this is interesting because this is uh, Grinda Chadja's British Asian film um, from the early 2000s. Uh, set in the world of women's football, was it late 90s? But certainly around the time when the titular Beckham was a global footballing icon, he was still in his playing days. It deals with issues such as sexism, uh, racism in modern day Britain. It wasn't a film I warmed to as I felt the narrative was cliched uh, and the football scenes I do think were, were quite poor. But as someone who at the time I was fairly sexist about women's football due to the patriarchal society that didn't allow young girls to play the game, I'm now a huge fan of, of the England women's team and go and see them regularly. And I acknowledge that it was quite a key cultural film that raised some interesting and some uncomfortable ideas of society at the time. And it's, a, I said, a cultural piece that I think is important, but what are your thoughts on it as a film in and of itself? Yeah, I do wonder if it maybe has been allowed to trade on that a little heavily because it, it isn't a good film in my opinion i think it's very televisual in its directorial style it's dramatically underwhelming it's a very poorly tacked on love interest story that didn't need to be there and maybe actually detracted a little bit from what the main characters were trying to achieve um, in the games themselves and as you mentioned the games are very poorly put together they really lack uh, impetus and tension and it's clearly football being acted out uh, what it did have was a really good marketing campaign, which caught a moment in time. David Beckham was a global superstar. Well, he still is, but he was really, his star was shining very, very bright at the time. And it cashed in well on that. For me, it's a possibly it would have been completely forgotten if it wasn't for the way we're now considering um, women's football, which uh, I have to freely admit as well. I, I had the same impressions as you when I was younger and I'm getting more into it. and. Um, you know, just 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 seeing um, how great the women's game is um, uh, from a community perspective. I think 
perhaps this film doesn't really maybe do enough for that, but certainly raises a few interesting points in that regard. Yeah. I mean, I, I just do remember the ending. There's two narratives. There's a wedding and a football match on the same day, and you can just see how it's going to play out. And that's what I didn't like. I was looking for films that tried to do something new with narrative. Yeah, drive, it doesn't. Yeah, I didn't think as I say, it's very that. televisual. Um, it, you, there's no surprises there, really. Yeah. Um, how well it's aged. Uh, I haven't seen it for a while. I can't really say, but it, it still sort of stands as, like we say, from maybe that cultural point, it did get people talking a bit more about women's football. Maybe it wouldn't work now because women's football is being a lot more widely accepted. So the fact that it may not work now is potentially a good thing. Who knows? Stadium and England trail Mexico by two goals to nil. Have you heard what the crowd is shouting? Bastards are bastards are bastards are They shouldn't be shouting at me. They should be shouting at you. And do you know why? Because it's in half time. Also, around the similar time, we had Mike Bassett, England manager. Uh, in 2001, after underperforming for about 10 years, Svengor and Oakston was appointed as the first foreigner of the England national team. Uh, there was a lack of successful English managers at the time, uh, but Steve Barron's, Steve Barron's mockumentary tapped into this by telling the fictional story of likeable but incompetent manager Mike Bassett, played by Ricky Tomlinson, as he tries to manage England through a World Cup campaign. It's not brilliant, but it has also become a bit of a cult classic. And I think that is largely down to the character of Mike Bassett rather than the film itself. But I also think it does avoid some of the cliches that we've been discussing. Yep, I agree with that. It's not brilliant, um, but it's a while since I've seen it, but I found it amusing and enjoyable enough. You're absolutely right. The focus on Mike Bassett, uh, the manager of um, sort of catapulted into this unlikely situation um that's the that gives the film a real heart actually and yeah the the outcome of the results is never that predictable in in a movie sense so i I think it does have a few things going for it it's certainly not a triumph but there are one or two interesting things and it's it is it's a daft and amusing film that passes the time nicely the the gag about him writing his squad on the back of a fag packet and accidentally calling up players called Benson and Hedges. I mean, that, that's just a brilliant <laughs> joke. It's a brilliant joke. And I do love the scene, the serious point, when he, he reads um, Rudyard Kipling's If, when he's in he's his lowest ebb and the press are, are circling him and he's in a press conference and he just says, he just starts reading this poem that's meant a lot to him and and then says, look, I'm done with all the systems. We're going to be playing 4-4, flipping two, and then walks out. And it's it's a really good and serious moment um, that strangely works given the daftness of what's on show. And then the film actually climaxes with England's end to the group stage of the World Cup. And then what happens after that is almost an afterthought. We we do see what we do find out what happens and it doesn't end with him lifting the World Cup for England, which I think is a good thing um, because again, how plausible would that be with a manager like that? The TV series that they made one series of the sitcom, the TV series, Mike Bassett manager, where he becomes manager of a fourth division football club called Wirral County. I think there's a lot more scope for comedy in there. Six episodes of it. Very, very funny. Uh, well worth checking out. Um, I think it's funnier. It follows the same sort of narrative arc as the film, but I think that was a bit more successful. But the film still likable. And I think Mike Bassett as a character still endures um, Sam Allardyce before we really knew about Sam Allardyce. Now, in the mid-2000s, we had Nick Love's The Football Factory, which was the story of Chelsea football hooligans heading for a meet with arch-rivals Millwall. It came out at a time when football hooliganism was still going on. It still is to this day, but not happening as much in the stands as it did in the 70s and 80s. There was also the film Green Street around a similar time. The fact that no football takes place during the film is telling. And I do feel that it's a film that actually takes, at times, does take a step back and look at its characters, telling them that they need to grow up. It is in some respects about toxic male culture. But I think the main issue is that 
none of the characters are particularly likable uh, and that is why you can't really invest in it and you just don't really care what happens to any of them was it the same for you dave yeah pretty much it does have a realism to it a grittiness which i'll give nick love this he does have a good level of skill at, at, at portraying that kind of gritty realism but it's a mean-spirited and unpleasant film with unpleasant characters and a philosophy that never convincingly sways away from glorifying such people. It is better than Green Street. That really doesn't say much because no one's going to be convinced by Frodo Baggins being part of a football firm. But yeah, I do agree with you. There's there's quite sort of freaky dreams that the lead character, Tommy Johnson, has played by Danny Dyer where he's worried about what's going to happen and he's supposed to be excited about this big fight, but he's just getting more and more concerned about it and having these quite freakish little dreams actually as well. But ultimately there's no kind of moment of clarity when he realizes what he's doing is, is a bit childish and a bit foolish, despite the fact that a couple of characters within the film actually say to him, you need to grow up, you know, and his grandfather says to him, the next time you come to the uh, to the graveyard you could be in a box uh, and there's no sort of moment of realization for him which i think is the film's main problem and if it did have that redemptive arc then maybe it would be a, a more successful film um mm. nonetheless uh looking for eric was a film that came out uh 20 around 2010 ken loach's comedy which he's a manchester united fan eric played by steve Evetts. And he starts having imaginary philosophical conversations with his idol, Manchester United star Eric Cantona, who plays himself. It's very much about the community of football fans and how the beautiful game can help people from working class backgrounds escape their daily routine. Um, It was also made at a time when the finances of football were really appearing to take it away from such people. And a fan-owned FC United Manchester also feature prominently in it. Now, I really love this film. Uh, It's less political than a lot of Loach's more recent work. It's unique. It's funny. It's original. Do you enjoy it as well, as as much as I do? Um, I did like it. But surprisingly, given I'm a Manchester United fan and Eric Cantona, who is great in it, he's one of my all-time favorite man united, man united players perhaps i went into it wanting a bit more from that side of things and i got more of the what it's like to be a working class football fan living on the bread line got a bit more of that perhaps than the eric Cantona side so i, I think i might have gone in for the wrong reasons um i i was president like it more than i did i do like it like i say and i don't disagree with your points um Maybe just the themes were possibly a bit on the nose for me. I'm not sure. I, I did see it a long time ago and I haven't watched it since. So it'd be interesting to maybe go back to it and see how I feel now. Uh, nonetheless, it's a good example of telling the story of a football from a fan's perspective, as we talked about with Purely Belter. Uh, the connection between the players and fans is often perceived as synthetic or maybe just absent altogether, which I think is certainly true in, in a lot of uh, respects. Certainly the richer footballers are getting, the more there is that disconnect. But there is also you do also forget there are really genuine fan and player connections that go on. And they're the two most important aspects of the game, the two most important groups in the game, the people who make the magic happen on the pitch and the people who give it the atmosphere and make the game what it is. And that that's a really strong element of this film. The scenes between Yvette's and Cantona are terrific. Um, I do think Eric Cantona is actually a very good actor and um, he's he's naturally charismatic and he and Yvette's play so well off each other. He was in uh, Elizabeth as well, wasn't he, Eric Cantona? He was, yeah. Uh, his yeah. first film role, I think, after he... Uh, or he might have done Children of the Marshland, which was a French film I owned, um, which I bought purely because he was in it, uh, where he <laughs> played a slightly psychotic boxer. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I was just trying to seek that one out. But yeah, I, I mean, like you say, the imagined conversations, it, it is very funny and it's perhaps slightly forgotten because it is a bit more frivolous, I would say, a bit more lighthearted than a lot of Loach works, which do have these weighty themes and very political themes, certainly as more recent films. But yeah, a, a very enjoyable film nonetheless. I think we can we can definitely agree on that. Oh, so we briefly mentioned... You briefly mentioned the the damned United. Uh, David Peace attempted to get inside the head of charismatic and unique football manager Brian Clough by writing a fictionalised account of his brief spell in charge of, of Leeds. 
It's a terrific book, uh, and Tom Hooper's adaptation is also a success, obviously built around Michael Sheen's brilliant embodiment of Clough. And we should also mention Cole Meaney as, as Dom Revy, who's fantastic. It's far from being a biopic that told an entire life story. It focused on one specific period in its subject's life, and that's something that Danny Boyle, Steve Jobs did, and Sam Taylor Woods, Nowhere Boy. It's a bit more of a common trend with films these days rather than trying to tell a big arc of you know spanning 30 years into just an hour and a half or two hours. So Tom Hooper's best film, I think, Dave. Without a doubt, this is the football film that really understands its story and where to focus to extrapolate the most intensity from it. The filming style is intimate. I referred to detail earlier. Uh, and in respect to even the grass on the pitch, well, the pitches here are war zones. They're almost like depictions of, in film of World War One trenches full of churning mud and attrition. Uh, the matches and training sessions feed from Clough, who was a remarkable football manager and personality. He was, at least I would say, he was certainly in the same bracket as Sir Alex Ferguson, Manchester United's great legendary manager, and that possibly as good as he was. And I think I think using that force of personality is what makes the game so compelling as well. We talked about how one aspect, one game, you don't see it at all. It's just just Clough and um, the atmosphere of the ground. Um, and the filmmakers put you inside Clough's perspective and Sheen plays him so well. This informs the story of the games. It's a very satisfying film in, in, in every respect, never mind just the football games, but it's certainly a great example for filmmakers if they wanted to go and make a football film. This is the film to reference for me. Yeah, and we should mention uh, I'll mention the performances, but there's Timothy Spall as well as Peter Taylor and Jim Broadbent. Well, he's always good in everything as well as the Derby County owner. Yeah, a fantastic film and uh, an adaptation of a book that I would say when you read it, how you think, how are they going to do this as a film? Because it's all told from Clough's internal dialogue, um, but it does transition well. Um, now, more recently, now this is a film I should stress I haven't seen. I don't think many people have. It's quite hard to get hold of, but United Passions. Now, this is a vanity project. It came out about the same time as the worldwide corruption of the game's governing body was coming to a head. The plot tells the story of three FIFA presidents, Hao uh, Havilland, played by Sam Neill, Jules Rumet, played by Gerard Depardieu, and Seth Blatter, played by Tim Roth, who admitted he only did it because he needed to put his kid through college and he needed the money. Blatter's seen as a saviour who cleans up the FIFA amongst the scandalous allegations and runs an anti-corruption campaign. Um, Roth said he thought when he received the script it would be an interesting take on the scandal and then discovered that there was no corruption. He couldn't really understand where it was. Uh, it was a footnote in the scandal because FIFA put a lot of money into the film, but I think maybe there is a scope for a really interesting film that could well see the light of day. So we may well see, bizarrely, a successful remake of this film at some point in the future. Who knows? Yeah, possibly without FIFA as the investors. Yeah. It's a bit like, you know, when someone writes their own autobiography. And I guess a lot of sporting documentaries that we see these days, when we're told they're documentaries, but actually they're made with by the person that's the subject. So they're more autobiographical. And this is obviously a fictional take, but it's FIFA trying to sort of paint themselves in a good light at a time when they were being seen as a bad light. Um, another more recent film was The Pass. Now, with football tackling issues of homophobia, which come up briefly in Bender Like Beckham, uh, there's a disproportionately low number of openly gay footballers in the professional game. Uh, we had the film The Pass, which was made by Ben Williams, an adaptation of a play, a three-act film, which follows two players played by Russell Tovey and Odin Skinney, who share a kiss in the hotel room on the eve of a Champions League match. It's a well-interested, a well-acted, uh, interesting film. Examines the role of celebrity and fame and the battle between inheriting the world and losing your soul. Is it something you've seen, Dave? No, it's not. Uh, it's um, quite timely, I think, given what's going on in the world of football now, uh, and some interesting themes and ideas in that, and, and very well acted. So, yes, because we're I think two use. two male players are now openly gay. Of course, in in the women's game, um, there's many players who are yeah. openly gay. It's much more commonplace and I say much more accepted. I think football can only do so much in terms of putting the groundwork in place and it's only when players actually do start to come out more regularly and we get a a more proportionate number of, of gay footballers that we can see how it will be reacted, how it will be received. Broadly speaking, I think it will be well received, but there will always, of course, be um, prejudice and, and homophobia, sadly. But The Pass is an interesting film. I would, would recommend seeking that one out. 
there's many other films we can we can discuss. I mean, we haven't talked about Gregory's Girl. Um, Early Man is a great comedy from uh, Ardman. The 51st State has football running throughout the background in which Robert Carlyle's primary goal is just to get to the Liverpool v Manchester United game. Uh, right at the start, he just delivers Samuel L. Jackson from the airport and then says to the, his crime boss, right, can I have my tickets to the game? And he says, no, just wait a minute. And then it all goes wrong throughout the entire plot. He just wants to go to the game. Uh, there's the Arsenal Stadium mystery, which is a sort of strange blend of football and an Agatha Christie style murder. There's that great scene in Amelie when she wants to get revenge on somebody by listening to the football. She sits on his roof, listens to the commentary of the football and unplugs his aerial whenever the ball gets near the goal. Brilliant scene. And then even the Italian job in which the main heist at the end takes place amidst the backdrop of a football match. So like we mentioned earlier, football actually features in films more than you might realise. Yes, no, it, it does. And I mean, I, I, I is it the... Oh, I, f- I forget which year it was, but the film Se- Secret in Their Eyes, I think it... Ooh. Oh, yeah, the Argentinian um, film. Yeah, yeah. and it there's a, there's a sequence which plays through a football game, I believe, if I remember rightly. It was yeah, quite a while since yeah. I saw it. And um, that is a really incredible sequence. There's a lot of aerial shots. There's a lot of tracking shots. Um, again, f- uh, if I remember this rightly, but it, it creates such a wonderful fluid movement and it's... It's they're, they're quite long takes as well, um, but it's also playing out well. I think there's um, someone being stalked uh, by an assassin in the, in the stadium. There's um, this subplot going on with the game as a backdrop, and it's very tense. It's very fluid, and it almost plays the tension between the characters like a football game using the football atmosphere in the background. It's very clever, and that's how they track him down. Is is the policeman says. You you can change your name, you can move, you can change your appearance, but you can't change your passion. So if this guy originally supported this team, he will be at a football match in the future. It stretches credibility slightly in the fact that they do Absolutely. find him in this big crowd. But yeah, like you said, that's a, a, a barnstorming sequence. I mean, there's been many football documentaries. We've mentioned the ones, there's probably a lot more now. We've mentioned the ones briefly where the subject is someone like Messi or Ronaldo and they're a bit more autobiographical. Maybe they're a bit soft in their approach, but there's quite a few decent ones. Uh, there's a Dan, a 21st century portrait, which we talked about uh, once in a lifetime. That's a good companion piece um, to escape to victory. It's about the rise and the fall of the, and the subsequent influence of the North American soccer league and about how they imported all these superstars such as George Best and Pelé to go and play in, in America. And the New York cosmos was this huge team, but it quickly fell away because they couldn't maintain itself because it imported all these ready-made stars and it didn't have anything built into grassroots. And I think the New York Cosmos were owned by, I think it's Warner or one big entertainment company also produced Escape to Victory. And as part of his contract, Pele had to appear in Escape to Victory as part of his contract with playing with the New York Cosmos. That's very well worth seeking out. A really yeah, good it's one I'd like to see, actually. I remember you recommending this to me years ago and I wanted to see it and never... Never got round to it. Must do that. Yeah, it's, it's quite. I think it's. I think it's about twenty years old now, but definitely worth checking out. It's also got a song by Rodriguez, who features in Searching for Sugar Man, uh, oh. and it came out before um, Searching for Sugar Man, which I found wow. quite an interesting little little footnote. Okay. Now, Class of '92 uh, is a more recent documentary. You've talked about Manchester United winning the '99 Champions League final and how that was built around a youth team. They did have a few players that they. Um, purchased the likes of Teddy Sheringham and Ole Gunnar Solskjaer but that's a really good documentary isn't it Dave? It is it's absolutely fantastic. We can compare that to the not great beyond the promised land. Oh that's if you want my worst football film ever that'll be beyond the promised land um what a horrible exercise in corporate filmmaking that is. There's that Irish guy who runs a bar in New York, and I thought I thought he was quite an interesting presence. But then they don't ask him about how he came to support Manchester United or his background or anything like that. And it's just, oh, here's them. Yeah, they won the league, but they didn't win the Champions League. And it's like, yeah, not good, um, not good. A couple of other little recommendations. In the hands of the gods follows some freestyling footballers as they try and busk their way. I should say uh, they do football keepy-uppies and tricks and so forth to get money to go and meet Diego Maradona. That's well worth seeking out. And Next Goal Wins is a wonderful documentary about the American Samoan football team after they were thrashed 36-0, I think, by Australia. 
31-0. They then tried to rejuvenate. 31-0. So it wasn't that bad. <laughs> uh, they tried to rejuvenate themselves. That's being made into a feature film uh, uh, written and directed by Taika Waititi that keeps getting delayed. It is due out at some point, but be interesting to see how that transcends. Uh, it's got Michael Fassbender in it, so that's always makes a film worth watching to a point. And I did like the trailer when it said um, Taika Waititi was from the Academy Award loser for best film for um, Jojo Rabbit. And it has this, it's quite a funny trailer saying he lost this award, they lost this award because it's a film about losers. So do check out the documentary, but uh, we'll see how the how the feature film works. I think that's the next sort of big football feature film that we're, we're going to get. So what else they can do, I don't know. We do like to end these podcasts with recommendations of three films based around football. So, Dave, uh, what's your first? So, this is a little bit of a cheeky inclusion as it features a football match rather than being about football, but I'm going to pick the Disney film Bedknobs and Broomsticks. Um, it's one of the best football matches on film, so I, I just couldn't say no to this. Uh, the the idea of the sequence is that the main characters have all been transported into a book uh, where there's which takes it from a uh, real world scenario, if you like, to an animated world, <clears throat> and they encounter a group of talking animals all animated, who uh, contrive to set up a football match which is heavily rigged so that the Lion King can win. And Professor Emilius Brown is played by David Tomlinson from Mary Poppins. It's not, not a true story. It's it, Yeah, just to clarify. Um, he poses as a referee in the game um, in an attempt to steal the King's Royal Star from around his neck. Uh, this Royal Star will complete a powerful magic trick, which they will need to thwart those pesky Nazis again. So football fighting to help fight Nazis seems to be quite a common theme. Um, uh, the game's absolutely gripping because there's this tension from Brown being potentially rumbled as a thief and the the animation actually allows the game to flow much faster than it would with people. So the filmmakers filmed it rather similar to a real football match because they weren't limited by human beings. They had the free-flowing pace of animation, which is interesting because it's mostly one wide shot, just as we'd watch a football match live, with just a few cuts. So the closer shots heighten the jeopardy of Professor Bound trying to grab the star, uh, getting mowed down by all the animals. And this sort of replicates when it cuts from that wider shot in a real football game to shots of players' reactions when they score a goal, sent off, whatever it is. It's a funny, entertaining, and brilliantly conceived sequence. Yeah, brilliant, brilliant recommendation. Uh, and a, a film that kind of gets lost behind, it's almost seen as um, subpar Mary Poppins, which I think is, maybe it's not seen as that, but it is kind of seen as not quite in that league. And I don't think that's fair, because I think it's, no, it's, it is I, a great film. It's actually my favourite Disney film, and I, I think it's yeah. weirdly underrated. Yeah, certainly, un, certainly underseen, I would suggest. Um, mm, that, possibly that fusion yeah, of yeah. real life and I think it won an Oscar for its for its visual effects. Um mm. just one point to to make the make it slightly unrealistic. Um as a, a little known rule in football that the ball has to be fully inflated. So technically the goal that's scored in bed dobs and broomsticks shouldn't have counted. Yeah, so, I'm not sure I would have told the Lion King that, but um <laughs> a bit of a bit of a set blatter character, maybe. Yeah. But that, that is it is a great goal the way the way the way he blows it over the line just yeah <laughs> wonderful. Now, if you, if you think you're sort of skirting the point by having Bedknobs and Broomsticks as a football film, my recommendation is really stretching it. But I've gone with um, Stephen Knight's Lock. Now, on the surface, um, Tom Hardy in a car for ninety minutes hardly seems like an obvious choice for a film about football. Uh, Lock is a terrific film. It's richly detailed, utterly gripping as Hardy's Ivan Lock drives from Birmingham to London. Um, while making and receiving a series of phone calls. The drama unfolds through the conversations and there's primarily two main plot threads. Now, it's a film that's best viewed knowing little. I don't want to give too much away, but one of the subplots involves a football match that Locke would be watching on TV with his sons were he not in on this uh, car journey. Now, it's 
bottom of his list of concerns, but high on that of his sons who are unaware of the unfolding drama. And its insignificance serves as an excellent counterpoint to the seriousness of the two main plot lines. Now, as the football match and film reached its climax, a conversation in which Locke finally discusses the match is a moment where he first shows an emotional core to an otherwise steely practical exterior. We never know who the teams are. We don't know what the competition is, um, although we do get one line from a supporting character that suggests it's a match that has wide interest across the nation. But the way it feeds into the plot is a very smart narrative technique in a film that's full of very smart narrative techniques. Um, I really recommend Locke. It's a great film. I did think the use of football in that was understated uh, and subtle, but nonetheless very smartly woven into the uh, the overarching narrative. So that's my recommendation, Locke. That's an excellent idea. <laughs> it's an um, excellent I'm concept. cheating slightly. There's no actual football, but... Um, it does feature, so I'm, I'm having it. That's <laughs> uh, great. Yeah, I love that argument for it. So my uh, next pick is, as we've you've just alluded to, Phil, um, the documentary from 2014 of Next Goal Wins, so not Taika Waititi's 2023 narrative remake, which I saw the trailer and I am worried is going to perhaps trivialise the emotional impact of the documentary. Perhaps it won't. We'll see. Um, it's a really heartwarming, you just couldn't make it up if you tried tale about the American Samoan football team who were comprehensively thrashed 31-0 by Australia in 2001, which I believe is an international record for a defeat. Um, and so to put that defeat into more context, American Samoa is an island of just 65,000 people. Naturally, they find it hard to find well, professional level players, never mind quality players. So at the time of the documentary, the team was largely unchanged from the one that played in the 31-0 thrashing in 2001. And they're building towards the World Cup qualifiers and bring in a Dutch coach called Thomas Rongen, who initially he's, he, he, he doesn't see how he's going to improve them. They're, they're they're incompetent footballers, really. Um, but he pushes them to become a real team, fit, strong, better technique, aggressive, real fighters. And they all build a brother a brotherhood, which Rongen has this gruff drill sergeant type of style. And this belies a very sensitive interior that's molded by a deep personal tragedy that's really, really upsetting. And Rongen's emotional journey is it's just as compelling as that of the players such as goalkeeper Nicky Salapu who admitted he was effectively traumatised by the experience of playing in the Australia match and he suffered from nightmares and redeems himself by playing through the qualifying rounds which featured in the movie and um, also the story of um, the only, I believe, transgender player in um in international football, Jaya Selua um, is welcomed into the team as a centre-back. And there's a just a real sense of inclusivity and togetherness about the whole squad, um, led by Rongen. Uh, it's just a wonderful, uplifting film that has some amazing... It's a really amazing how the team develop and the improvement Rongen oversees in this team. is It's just almost close to miraculous. It's about spirit, it's about passion, it's about getting away from your troubles to make a brotherhood, if you like. And it's what football's really about. Yeah, because they're never going to qualify for a World Cup or win a tournament, are they? No, probably You know that, but they do find kind of things that are more important than that in in their journey. Yeah, um, and, and they get is, better as well, not to yeah. spoil anything. <laughs> Yeah, very, very, uh, very much worth checking out that, that before the uh, the feature comes out. We'll go in that with an open mind and see how it how it works. But um, we'll see. I I struggle to believe it can be better than the documentary. Um, maybe it'll be unnecessary, but like we say, we'll see what they do with it. Uh, my second rend- second recommendation is Kez. Um, Looking for Eric, which we've talked about, is a more overt football film. But Ken Loach's Kez is. It features one of the greatest football matches ever committed to film. Now, this was described to me as the saddest film ever made. Uh, there is a good case for it to be so, but the football match is a moment of real light relief as Brian Glover's Mr. Sugden completely takes over uh, a PE match that he's supposed to be 
he's supposed to be running the PE session, but he just takes over this football match and regresses to a childlike state to play act as Bobby Charlton, whilst at the same time using his grown-up authority to dictate the game and being the referee. Now, one of the key themes of Kez is the way the school system represses the children. The main character of Billy could thrive if given the opportunity to learn, as we see through his self-taught understanding of falconry. The football match demonstrates this as Mr. Sugden refuses to teach or allow the boys to grow naturally. He represses any opportunity in order to fulfil his own childlike fantasy of playing for Manchester United. However, the climax of the match is a rare moment of victory for their boys uh, in their otherwise repressed working class existence and something that football is so often brilliant at doing. I love the way Loach puts the scores on the screen as well. Um, it's quite iconic, but Ken Loach's Kez and the football scene in that is my, my second recommendation. What have you got, number three? Brilliant. So my third pick, as a Manchester United fan, had to be class of 92. It's just quite simply a treat. I think it also makes for interesting viewing for wider football fans, although I'll... <laughs> leave you guys to to uh, decide on that um as you as you mentioned it's about the brilliant stars of the youth cup winning team of 1992 went on uh, to win the legendary 1999 treble with the senior manchester united team uh, a lot of that well they were all from all brought up in the local area uh, it's a very romantic and incredible story it explores their their lives during and post their football careers and they come across as a witty, honest and refreshingly authentic um, bunch of bunch of lads, which makes a change from behind the often platitude heavy interviews with footballers. Um, there's a real down to earth feel about it. And these players are brought through the club system and they're part of the culture and fabric of what it means to be a top professional at Manchester United, uh, such a big, big global brand as it is now. Um, and that is a very unique thing. We may never see it again um, where a group of local lads all come through and become one of the greatest sides ever to have played the game. And it's also fascinating hearing from former youth team players who played alongside them. They starred in the cup win, but didn't ultimately make it as professionals. Um, particularly interesting is Raphael Burke, who was considered to be the best player in the team by the coaches. Um, but he freely admits he wasn't committed enough. He wanted to go out and drink and and muck about with his mates. And he he had no regrets about that. That was he just didn't want it enough. But he he's so proud of what they've achieved and is such a positive energy and that was a very interesting interview I, I do admit Tony Blair's inclusion is rather incongruous and he doesn't really offer anything of value I'm not even sure he's really a football fan um, and that attempt to tie the players into this 90s zeitgeist is a bit clumsy in all fairness so it probably will appeal to United fans most these players are my generation stars the way Bess Law and Charlton were for my dad's generation but there is plenty of football fans to enjoy in general, and they may even be surprised by how involving the film is. Um, but it was just a complete treat for me. I think there's a real sadness to it in that are we ever going to see youth team form the basis of a Champions League winning team for England again? Yeah. Um, the way that football's been has changed so much. And Clive Tilsley says in the commentary that they play in that film, who knows when or if an English side will ever get to this point again, because it was quite a rare thing. We we had the ban throughout the 80s and there have been no English teams in the Champions League final uh, until that point. And then in the 25 years since then, we've had Arsenal, Tottenham, both been in the final. Liverpool have been in three finals, four finals, won it twice. Manchester United, three finals. Manchester City about to play in their seconds. Uh, Chelsea have been in three finals, won it twice. It's become more commonplace. Um, as the Premier League has become this global phenomenon. But sadly, as a result of the influx of, of money, um, and that's not inherently a bad thing per se, but it does feel that it's more about who can assemble the best squad rather than who can develop the best squad to grow into something that's going to win a Champions League. And it's a real shame that I don't think we will see something like that happen again unless football fundamentally changes. So it's it's almost the a bit of a sad period piece um, as great as it was back then. Yeah, I think that's a fair comment. Um, not to be too depressing. Um, but my uh, third and final recommendation is Offside. Now, Jaffa Bahani is a fascinating filmmaker, although his work can be somewhat fragmented due to the difficulties he faces uh, in Iran in making them. 
Uh, Offside is his most complete and enjoyable film, and it follows an unnamed female football fan played by Shima Mubarak Shahi, who disguises herself as a boy to watch a pivotal World Cup qualifier between Iran and Bahrain, uh, as women are banned from going into the stadium. She's caught, and she's placed in a holding pen with other women who've done the same thing as her. The pen is close to a gap in the concourse, but women can't see the game and have to go via crowd reactions. It's a football film that shows absolutely no football. It makes comments on the treatment of women as well as the power of sport to unite. It was reportedly shot at an actual game with multiple endings depending on the outcome of the match. So there is a documentary element at play here. And it's, as always with Pahani's work, the lines between reality and fiction are extremely blurred. I think it's his best, his most accessible work. And I think it's the best fictional film about football that there is although there is a, a factual backdrop to it so Jaffa Bahani's Offside is is my third and final recommendation well worth seeking that one brilliant I'm so gutted I didn't get to see it before this podcast um uh, in terms of Jaffa Panahi he, he follows very similar themes in his film The Circle which is also excellent um no football in that but just a terrific film yeah it, I think because it's a foreign film uh, foreign language film it often gets missed off a lot of lists when people mm-hmm. do their best ever football films and that really annoys me I, I if i see a list of 10 greatest football films and that doesn't feature i just have no respect for the list because i think it it should be there i think it should be number one but you know it should definitely be in what i would consider to be the, the top 10 greatest ever football films mm-hmm. yeah and I'd, I'd have to give a special mention to uh stephen Shaw shaolin soccer which has got to be the best comedy football film ever made <laughs> that's one i've not seen actually that's, that's of, fantastic uh, uh, yeah the players play the who get kung fu superpowers kung fu kicks, and yeah. um that you know they're putting demons in the football by the end it's absolutely insane and it's hilarious i'll have to check that one out i think we've covered most of the films that feature football in some way shape or form and there are certainly a lot more than I realised when I started putting this podcast together. Um, the Italian job, again, was one I didn't even think of. And then, oh, yeah, that happens with a football match. What's the yeah, and I bet we think of more as well anything. after this. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we'd be surprised. But I think we've covered enough uh, enough ground or enough pitch, I should say. Uh, thanks for downloading. We hope you enjoyed. As I said, you can search Outward on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube channel. Our website is outwardfilmnetwork.com. And one very exciting announcement, the first feature film made under the Outward Film banner, Night Lens, is now available on Amazon Prime in the UK. So do seek that out if you can. Uh, We'd love to hear your feedback, any ideas you have for future episodes linked to numbers. Um, Do let us know your suggestions. Next up, unsurprisingly, it's episode 12. Thanks for listening.